On this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, Lisa Morgan will be leading some conversations with Rasul Berry and Bill Crowder and Daniel Ryan Day about the subject of crowns. We have such a fascination with crowns, with crowns of royalty, don't we? I mean, we just get glued to different moments of looking at them. And even the Can show, just, The Crown. And even the show. <laughs> even yeah. the show. But we, what is it that's so attractive to us about crowns? Why are we so enthralled with them today? Well, as we're going to discover, it's not just today. We're going to explore together how prevalent crowns are as an image used in the Bible. All sorts of crowns, priestly crowns, royal crowns, celebration crowns, a crown of thorns, a crown of life. Yeah, there are a lot of different kinds of crowns mentioned in the Bible. A kind of crown not mentioned that we won't be talking about are dental crowns. Now, nobody really wants to talk about those crowns anyway. I mean, tooth pain, root canals, unplanned expense. No, we won't be talking about dental crowns. But when you go to the Bible, it's a pretty fascinating thing to find the different ways crowns are mentioned. And so pull your chair up to the table for a study called Crowns, here on the Discover the Word podcast. Well, hi, I'm Brian Hedinga, and it's time to get another hour of exploring the scriptures together underway. Discover the Word is the small group Bible study from our Daily Bread Ministries. And as I said, your study partners for this episode are Elisa and Rasul and Bill and Daniel. And the theme of this study is crowns, because Scripture does contain many mentions of crowns throughout its pages. And so what is the significance of the crowns mentioned in both the Old and New Testaments? How is our understanding of crowns similar, and how is it different? Because, I mean, to us, crowns signify victory and sovereignty and empire. It's a visible sign of success, thus the term crowning achievement. And so it makes wearing a crown a great honor. And so how might understanding the role of crowns in the Bible impact the way we think and live today? Well, that's what we hope spending this time together will accomplish. So let's get started and listen to how Elisa gets us into this study called Crowns. When Evan and I got married, we carefully chose a hymn that the congregation would sing. And I remember we went through all kinds of them. And I had grown up in one church. He'd grown up in another church. So we had different favorites, you know, kind of thing. But we ended up choosing Crown Him with Many Crowns. Now, are y'all familiar with that hymn? Yes. I mean, it's one of the lesser known ones, I think. I'm not. Yeah, see? <laughs> yeah. It's, one, it's of one of my favorites, actually. Um, Is it? Yeah, it's one that I really love it when it's accompanied by a big pipe organ. Uh-huh. That's kind of what we had, a big yeah. pipe organ. Yeah. So why? Well, I think it just has a sense of majesty to it. Uh I think sometimes, at least in my experience, we so overly humanize Jesus that we forget the majesty of who he is. And it's a good reminder of that. Yeah. It is a powerful hymn. And it's one of those where the music and the lyrics go well together to create kind of a awe or a reverence of who God is, mm-hmm. but in a very like invitational and good way. Not not where we feel so other that we can't approach God, but where we're invited into this relationship with him, but as the king, as the one who's on the throne. So yeah, I'm, I'm with Bill. I think it's a really powerful one. Although the version I'm most familiar with is a more modern version of it than, <laughs> yeah, that's probably than a pipe too. organ. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. The one I'm thinking of it goes crown him with many crowns. So if you're wondering, that that's what it is. But each verse crowns Jesus with something else. So it's mm-hmm. it kind of cumulative, if you yeah. will. So crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. And then the next one is crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave, and then crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands and side, and then crown him the Lord of years, the potentate 
of time. A hymn researcher reported this. This call to crown Jesus with many crowns is a simple and yet profound declaration that Christ is many things and everything. Lord of all, to be crowned for many things that all add up to him being the savior of the world. And each crown represents a different aspect of who he is, Lord of love, etc. I think that is the point. And I think that's what you're getting at, Bill, and you're getting at Daniel. And now, Russell, it's going to be your favorite, you know, once you can listen <laughs> to it. And I actually started scraping around in scripture just with the concept of crowns. And I was very interested, and I want to challenge all of us to consider in these conversations, why are crowns so prevalent in scripture? You know, was it just cultural? Does it have to do with with God and how he's trying to reveal himself? What's in it for us in the conversation of crowns? There are a whole bunch of different kinds of crowns in scripture, Mm -hmm. like garlands and regular crowns and wreaths and turbans, and sometimes even used of your head, okay? But we're gonna dive into this conversation, one of the kinds of crowns, which is a priestly crown. When you think of a priestly crown, what images come to mind? Honestly, I don't have any images. <laughs> I, don't no? know, I don't even know what that is. Or yeah. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing, Daniel, because to me, I don't think of priests wearing crowns. I, th- I think of kings and monarchs wearing crowns. I don't think of a priest wearing a crown. So that's kind of a new idea for me, mm-hmm. too. Okay. Yeah, I think about, in a vague sense, I remember that the priest in the Old Testament had some type of head covering that was used because I remember when I first read it and being surprised because in church you're supposed to take your hat off and uh, out of reverence (laughs) then here reading in the temple the priests were told to have some type of head covering on so that's what I think of yeah I guess it's the word crown is what is tricky because Uh I can think of clergy within my own denomination that wear certain head coverings or things like that but I've never thought of them as crowns I always think of them as funny hats (laughs) <laughs> I know. And I think a lot of this is our cultural understanding. And we'll talk about royal crowns in a next conversation. But the priestly crown, and Russell, you're right. In fact, let, let's go to the Old Testament and read a section. This is in Exodus 28, verses 36 to 41. And instructions are given about how a priestly crown should be created. And Bill, could you start us and then somebody else pick it up? Okay, Exodus 28, verse 36. Mm-hmm. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as on a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. And then in verse 39... Weave the tunic of fine linen and make the turban of fine linen. The sash is to be the work of an embroiderer. Make tunics, sashes, and caps for Aaron's sons to give them dignity and honor. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them, consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Okay, who's speaking here? God. God. Yeah. And who's he speaking to? Moses. Yes. And who's Aaron? Moses' brother. Right. Okay. And Aaron represents and is important in the role of what? The priesthood. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, Elisa, that last part of verse 38 that I read, it will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. The role of the priest was to represent the people before God. And so even in the headgear that Aaron was going to have, there was this idea of representation of the people before God. And that's the priest's whole role, Mm -hmm. to represent the people, to make an offering. And only one who is holy and been declared holy can bear the guilt in relation to Israel's sacredness, you know, Israel's purity. If you think about the Jewish religion, often the rabbis wear. If you think about mm-hmm. Episcopalian, if you think about Greek Orthodox, there are many who have brought this forward into modern time. But this is an expression that we see in the Old Testament that's really related to a priest bearing 
guilt and all of this description and intricacy that God goes into here. Take it forward into the New Testament, and let's see what we might see there. Um, Let's go to Hebrews 7, and then verses 23 to 28. I got it. Okay. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. We don't see the word crown used right here. We will in further conversations about Jesus being crowned, but we definitely see him referred to as a priest. In fact, the high priest and a different kind of priest than those in the Old Testament. What stands out to you there? In the Old Testament, they bore the guilt of the people or they were set apart as special as a people and they kind of represented that as priests Mm -hmm. but they also had to sacrifice not just for the sins of the people but for their own brokenness as well Mm -hmm. and so the thing that jumped out to me in the hebrews passage is that this new high priest jesus who gave up himself he did not need to like cover his own brokenness and sin and then cover the people's. He was a perfect sacrifice or a, a perfect setting apart or atonement or whatever word we want to use there for the people. So he like represented the best of what humanity was supposed to be, but then also through his death and resurrection covered the sin and brokenness of all people. That's a great explanation, yeah. I think what you're describing, Daniel, is seen in the contrast between verse 26 and 28. In verse 26, Jesus is the high priest who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. In verse 28, the human priests are men in all their weakness. Mm -hmm. So you have the contrast of Jesus' perfection and human weakness uh, in the human priests. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that also... Both of those points bear out the other difference that we see in the end of verse 27. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So the permanence of the efficacy or the effectiveness of the sacrifice also sets Jesus apart. Whereas they went time after time, whenever the festivals, whatever the law instructed them to sacrifice, they had to do it at that point. Jesus only once forever because his sacrifice was satisfactory completely to God. And you use the word permanence. That word Mm -hmm. actually shows up in verse 24, where it's talking about another difference between them, which is the priests had to pass down authority to other priests because at some point they would die. But Jesus, because he lives forever, has a permanent priesthood. Mm -hmm. He's not dying Uh, at this point because he's already risen from the grave and defeated death. And so we have this picture of the work that Jesus did is permanent. It goes on forever, Mm -hmm. him being the ultimate high priest that never dies. And so that's really good news too, because we have this like (laughs) faithful, ongoing, sacrificial, loving God who represents Mm -hmm. us. So what a contrast, the Old Testament and then Jesus as the fulfillment. You know, you see this long thread of a story, which is not a thread. It's like the whole the whole purpose, right? The whole purpose of a story, beginning with God making provision for his people and then finally offering his son as the total provision. And, and so when this whole conversation about crowns, we do think of them as a kind of a tiara that sits in our head like fingers pointing up to heaven. The crown of a priest in the Old Testament still did point up to heaven. And, and if we can simply follow the metaphors and the, the symbols, is maybe a better word, that God uses in culture and in his work and in his people, I think we'll see him continually pointing us to Jesus, who is our perfect priest. 
who did make a way and who's permanent. So let's continue to explore that idea of the crown that points our attention to God. When Queen Elizabeth died, I, like many millions of people, watched part of her funeral. It was so amazing. And her vast assortment of tiaras went on display. But you might remember, too, that the crown jewels, which really represented her authority and had been passed down, was affixed to the top of her coffin. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And what happened to them when her casket descended down into the nave, I guess you call it, of the cathedral there. They did not go down with the casket, but they they remained so that they would then pass them on to her successor, King Charles. Mm -hmm. Right. And we watched the different people take their tools and take them apart, detach them, and then very carefully place them on these royal pillows and et cetera, all this ceremony around the crown jewels. So we'll see them again, I guess, at some point in different moments. We have such a fascination with crowns, with crowns of royalty, don't we? And even the show, The Crown. And even the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the show. Uh, one yeah. of the times that Marlene and I were in London, we went to the Tower of London, which now as a part of the Tower of London complex, there's a place where you can actually go in and see all of these crowns and all of the royal jewelry and all that kind of stuff. And it's really amazing to see how many precious stones are involved in honoring the monarch of the United Kingdom. Yeah. But we have this fascination. In fact, this is really kind of cute, this little story. Um, when I stepped down from leadership at MOPS, the staff gave me a party, and my going away party was the Queen Elisa party. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they had a Burger King crown they put on my head and, you know, they put a little robe on me and sat me on a little throne. It was hysterical. Mm-hmm. And my grandson, Marcus, was about five years old and he came to the party and the next day he goes, Yaya, are you really a queen? <laughs> <laughs> but we, what is it that's so attractive to us about royal crowns? As we, as we continue our conversation on crowns and scripture and what we see there, why are we so enthralled with them today. I wonder if part of it's just because there's something that crowns are supposed to represent that we long for, Mm. which is like this ideal person for that nation or country Mm. who is like making good decisions and who is Mm. just and who represents all that's best with that group of people. So I, I think part of it's that, even though that description falls short of every monarch ever. Yeah. But yeah. there is like this, I think, something that draws us to a symbol of goodness and justice and authority yeah. that we long for, even if we don't actually get to see it. Yeah. Um, when we go and, and look at the thread of crowns in scripture, you know, you're going to see Israel begging for a king. You know, can we have a king like everybody else? They have a king. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, God acknowledges and and grants their desire and begins the monarchy stage of history in in Israel and in his people. But we see David himself describing his role as king before God in Psalm 21. And if we could just look at that, and then I want to scoot over to another couple of places. So let's just read it kind of quickly. Uh, Russell, could you grab that? Sure. Psalm 21 for the director of music, a Psalm of David. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. 
Okay, that's, that's one of those beautiful pictures we all want to see in terms of kingly attributes and kingly dependence on the Most High. And then in verse 3, you've placed a crown of pure gold on his head. And, you know, I do think we've already touched on the great challenge of crowns, of royalty, of this designation. We long for that kind of notoriety, as you might put it, Daniel. But with it comes a great temptation to abuse power. But in Psalm 21, we see a beautiful picture of it, don't we? But David would go on to abuse his power pretty yeah, severely, right? Yeah. Yes, totally he would, because... Yeah. He's human, and yeah. they go together, the, the giving of power with the temptation of power. In Second Samuel, we see the transition of the kingship going from Saul to David, and the crown plays a role in it. Um, just maybe could we read through that and net out what was important about the crown's transition here? Bill, could you start us there? Sure. 2 Samuel 1, verse 1, after the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Mm. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? And Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. So what's the significance of taking the crown and the band that was on his arm to David? I think it's a symbol of the authority of Saul being passed on to, you know, mm -hmm. the next person. And it would have been a sign of humiliation for the opposing people in the war to have that crown and kind of even use it as a mm -hmm. sign of their dominance or dominion over mm -hmm. the Israelites. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. interesting, too, that the story begins talking about David killing a bunch of Amalekites and then it's an Amalekite that brings the crown to him and you know why did he decide to take it to David of all people versus finding out who would be next in Saul's line and try to give it to that person you almost wonder if there's a, a level of like well David's the one that kills all my people so I'm going to take the crown to him and maybe he'll show me mercy or or something like that too interesting that's a very clear expression of the emblem of the power of the crown being passed on. There are other usages, of course, of royal crowns in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 12 going on. We're going to see pagan kings and idols. You know, if you're interested, there's so much to dig through here on this concept of the use of crowns as an emblem of power until we get to the book of Revelation and the kingly power is expressed three times in the New Testament. We see the great red dragon who wears seven crowns. In a similar way, we see the beast coming out of the sea who receives power and authority from the dragon, has 10 crowns. But then, somebody grab Revelation 19, 11 to 13, if you would. Then we see the one who's faithful and true crowned. I've got it. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many crowns, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. What a powerful picture of where the crown of true worship, of true royalty remains on the head of our heavenly king. And I think, so what do I do with that? And I catch myself 
watching clips of Queen Elizabeth or King Charles or Princess Diana or whoever. And it is impressive. And it is spectacular. But it compares not a bit to our true king, who's our true ruler. It just makes me catch my heart and go, what is this fascination about Elisa? And can I let those royal crowns in my world point me to the royal king, who I hope is on the throne in my heart? You're listening to Discover the Word with your friends Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry as they discuss the different crowns mentioned in Scripture and what they represent. And so far, they've talked about a priestly crown and a royal crown. And in the next segment, the group will discuss uh, what they'll call celebration crowns, kind of like your high school prom. Do you remember that? Uh, Did you go? Uh, Were you part of organizing it, like choosing the theme and the song and all of that? It was kind of a big deal, wasn't it? Organizing and then decorating. And then you got all dressed up, went to dinner with a group of your friends, or maybe you had a date and the two of you went to a fancy restaurant. You were all nervous about asking and uh, being asked. And then a prom king and queen were chosen, right? And uh, a what was placed on their heads? Yeah, a crown. Big moment when the king and queen of the senior prom were crowned or coronated. And so celebration crowns. We'll find some of those in the Bible after a quick word from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Now, obviously, you're already familiar with the Bible studies we have here on Discover the Word. But you may not realize just how much Bible engagement content we produce at Our Daily Bread Ministries. And so we've recently given you a way to have easy access to all of our various media content in one place. On the Our Daily Bread Ministries Media Hub website, you'll find videos with Jack Beck taking you to the Holy Land. A lot of videos, actually, on a variety of topics that help you engage the scriptures in a practical and relevant way. This Media Hub also gives you access to our audio podcasts. We have a lot that I think you'll be interested in. So I invite you to discover the resources available free of charge at odbmedia.org. And I would encourage you to subscribe in order to get some updates when new content is released. Just click where it says sign up here. They're on the Media Hub website. And sign up to get those alerts and insider info at odbmedia.org. That's ODB for Our Daily Bread, odbmedia.org. All right, and so celebration crowns. That's the theme of this next part of this study, simply called Crowns. Do you know what a golden birthday is? Sometimes it's called a crown birthday. Have you heard that term? Nope. No. Okay. Golden birthday or a crown birthday is when you turn the age of the day of the month on which you were born. So for Mm. instance, I was born on April 7th. So... My golden birthday, my crown birthday, was April 7th when I was seven years old. Mm. Ah. That makes sense? See, that's disappointing for me because I was born on the (laughs) 2nd. Yeah, I didn't even know this was a thing on my golden birthday. Can I have another one? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm thinking of ways that, you know, the crown birthday, you know, you often see little party hats on kids that are, you know, like crowns and stuff. Where else do we see crowns and celebrations? In modern day. I think about when the Olympics were in Greece with the old yeah. you know, style of putting the garland mm-hmm. on people's mm-hmm. heads as well mm-hmm. as their medals. That's good. I think of uh, it's still connected to birthdays, but in my wife's Cuban culture, the quinceanera is a really big birthday, yeah. which is when a girl turns 15. And it's very much like a royal type celebration. And they often wear tiaras in that uh, setting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, I was speaking at a Bible conference in Michigan uh, that I've spoken at a lot. And my mom was there with us that week with Marlene and I. And of the many activities they had, they had a zip line. And my mom was 92 
and she was determined that she was oh. going to ride that zipline. <laughs> no. Wow. And she did. She broke the record by eight years of the oh. oldest person to ride the zipline. And the next morning, some people showed up, and they had made her a crown and a sash that said Queen of the Zipline on it. What a perfect example. Yeah. That is a great example. As we continue this conversation about crowns in Scripture and how they thread through the history of all of our people, uh, you know, we've looked at priestly crowns and how God dictated how a priestly crown would really separate out, recognize the priestly office of the one who would make offerings for the people of God. And then we looked at royal crowns and how God anointed individuals as kings. And then on through our ultimate priest and king is Jesus. And we looked at that all the way to Revelation. But in this conversation, I want to look at this concept of celebration crowns, because scripture's chock full of those as well. And these are crowns we wear. And I want us to consider how do crowns represent God's response to our faith? How do they represent his pleasure with us? The first place I want us to look is in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And Russell, if you could just net out what the beginning of this chapter is about, and then Focus in on verses 7 to 9 for us. So Proverbs in, in general and definitely here is often written, you know, from the perspective of a father to a son attributed to Solomon in many instances, not all. But here what you're seeing is a father essentially instructing the son to listen to its counsel, to get a sense of wisdom, wisdom uh, yep. from him. Uh, and verse 7 you know, it's kind of this culmination. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her, she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Yeah. I love that the beginning of wisdom is this, get, get it. with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you see that pictured in, in the life of Solomon in... Just as he takes the throne, God comes to him in a dream and says, you can have whatever you want. And Solomon says, give me wisdom. And God says, okay. Mm. And, and then when you are wise, it's like having a garland to grace your head. And that goes back to the Greek Olympics. You were talking about the games. I think of that there. It goes back to a glorious crown. It really, so many illustrations, specifically in the Old Testament. And I want to just give out some scripture assignments here and anybody who's listening let's grab your bible and you can do it too would somebody get proverbs 10 6 daniel sure. and then how about proverbs 14 18 bill okay and then 16 31 rasul mm-hmm. i'll get 17 6 and i'll get uh, 12 4 okay and we're going to kind of pop through these and listen to how god responds to people with this designation of crown. Okay, so first off, 10-6. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. 14-18. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. Okay, what are prudent people? What does that mean? Cautious. Okay. Okay, 16-31. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Then 17.6, children's children are a crown, are they not? It's our better grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Um, 12.4, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown. We could go on and on here. The book of Isaiah talks about different illustrations, uh, things like a laurel wreath worn at banquets of celebration in Isaiah 28, 1, or in Song of Solomon 2, 8. In Isaiah 61, 3, the year of the Lord's favor, we get a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Hmm. Scoot over into the New Testament now, and Paul uses a very interesting description uh, 2 Corinthians 9.25, he talks about a victor's crown given at athletic games. 
What do we know about that? What is Paul referencing? Well, he's talking about a crown that will not fade away. Now, those laurel crowns that leaf crowns that Rasul was describing a little earlier, those things would eventually wither and die because they're cut from the branch and so forth to make the crown and woven together. But he's talking about running the race with patience so that we can receive a crown that does not fade away or Mm -hmm. wither and die. So good. So people would understand that reference because they're familiar to the laurel crowns given. And what a great contrast that is. And then I love what he says in Philippians 4.1, if somebody could grab that. This is very personal. Yeah, sure, I got it. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So they are his crown those he loves and longs for. Yeah. 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 The people are actually Paul's crown. Believers Mm -hmm. are Paul's crown, his joy, his celebration. And then let's look at one more. Let's see. First Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20. Uh, Russell, do you have that? Yep, I have it. Yeah. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. I just like to let that sink in. That is just... Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, and I feel like that word glory might be one of the helpful ideas to kind of tie a lot of these together Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. uh, it's like the thing that sets us apart or the thing that we celebrate that, like, for example, at the beginning, you talked about wisdom being the crown of blessing or in Paul's case these people that have responded positively to this message about Jesus that he's been sharing. A lot of times we put glory in things that Hmm. like a crown fade away. And all of the things here that they're pointing to are things that really don't fade away. They're wisdom or the celebration of others who hear the good news and respond or the kids that come after us, or just the fact that we have gray hair that kind of symbolizes wisdom of experience. So there's like an unfading nature to each of these that is the glory. It's like the thing that sets us apart that is best about us. Mm. I think often when you're stressed in your day and you think, I can't get it all done, there's not enough of me, and you're juggling the priorities, and it's all just a big blur in terms of what did I get done today and what matters? And that underwriting question of In the end, what difference does anything make? And I think we come back to what the truest thing to celebrate is not necessarily being seven on April 7th. You know, the truest thing to celebrate is people. That's the thing that lasts. And the true celebration that will not fade away like a Burger King crown or a bride tiara, the true thing that won't fade away but will last into eternity are the people who come to know the king, who wears the eternal crown. And this discussion of crowns always seems to end up there, doesn't it? Nothing wrong with celebrating things, and especially people, as long as we don't lose sight of the one who truly wears the crown in all things. Crown him with many crowns. Well, next we're going to go to the Gospels for another reference to a crown. Next, we're going to look at a crown that appears in the story of the life of Jesus around the time of his trial and crucifixion. It's the crown of thorns. It is a sobering side of this discussion about crowns, but one that ends up in a surprising and optimistic spot. So let's head back to the table as this look at crowns in Scripture continues. When you imagine the scene of the crucifixion, what items about it fix in your mind? The nails. Mm-hmm. I don't think so much about the the items, to use your word, Elisa, as I do the people. Mm. I think mm-hmm. about the two thieves. I think about Mary and the other women and John. I think about the soldiers. I think about the crowd and the anger and the... Mm hate-filled words that they're throwing at Jesus. Um, I kind of get drawn into the people more than the items. Yeah. 
but the items are important. That's a good way to begin a spill. It's like we're going to zoom out and then zoom in a little bit. So zooming out, you see crosses, three crosses, people, soldiers, horribleness, you know, but then zooming in to Jesus himself. What do you see? Well, if you zoom in on his hands and feet, like Rasul said, you'll focus on the nails. If you zoom in on his face, you're liable to see the crown of thorns. Mm -hmm. But overall, there's going to be a lot of blood, Mm -hmm. a lot of torn tissue. Mm -hmm. Like the most disturbing sight you could ever witness is a Roman crucifixion. So, yeah, I don't like to think about it, honestly because of how disturbing that would be. I agree. And when I think about Jesus, the pictures of him suffering, and zoom in on his face, that's a good way to put it, Bill. We almost always see it depicted with a crown of thorns, really Mm -hmm. front and center. And yet that crown of thorns (laughs) was not put on him at the cross. Mm -hmm. When was it put upon him? during the beatings that he received prior to the cross. Yeah, he was being mocked, Yeah, mm-hmm. and they put a scarlet robe on him mm-hmm. as, oh, look at this king, and then pressed a crown of thorns on his head, and then mockingly bowed to him and acted like they were worshiping him. Yeah. Let's actually read the passages. And, you know, as we sometimes do, imagine yourself in the crowd watching this. Sorry, Daniel, it's painful for a few minutes. It is. Uh, Imagine yourself in the crowd watching this. So it's uh, told in three of the Gospels, Mark 15, Matthew 27, John 19. And I'd like us to read each one of those. Let's just each take one of those and just read through it and listen for the crown of thorns. They're very similar. Mm. Let's see if you pick out anything. Uh, Russell, would you start us with Mark 15, 16 to 20? Sure. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, They took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to be crucified. Daniel, Matthew 27, 27 to 31. Yeah. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Bill, John 19, 1 to 5. Yeah, just before I read, Elisa, I think in Mm -hmm. both of those descriptions, Mm -hmm. it's not only striking that they put a crown of thorns on his head, but then they continually bashed him on the head with a rod, which would have driven those thorns into his scalp. It's a horrible picture. John 19, one through five, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, hail king of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. There are several similarities in the passages, right? Um, You see a scarlet slash purple robe. You see, like you said, Bill, they're smashing him in the head or slapping him in the face. Mm -hmm. Um, You see him spitting on him. What's the whole thing with the crown? What's the whole thing with the 
Hail, King of the Jews. Yeah. You know, one of the dis- definitions of a crown, and as we've been talking in these last few conversations, this idea of honor has come up is a distinction that comes from a great achievement. It's a sense of majesty, mm-hmm. a known sense of honor that someone is being given. And so this act of putting a crown of thorns on him in this robe in a very mocking way is the very epitome of the opposite of that honor. It's a mockery, you know, the sense of dishonor in a significant way. How can we dishonor you the most as possible? Oh, you think you're a king? Okay, let's show you how much you're not that by giving Mm -hmm. you a torturous version of what this would actually be as a sense of honor. Yeah, it's more of a crown of humiliation than of honor, like you're saying, Russell. It's again, you know, we've all heard it said before, but if you look closely at the events of the cross, it shows God at his very best and humankind at their very worst. Mm-hmm. And it's just beyond imagination how horrifying that must have been for Mary for John, for the women that were there who were followers of Jesus to have to witness all that. Yeah, and their goal as soldiers was to make a statement about the whole community too. And we see that here as well. It was, here's your king, Jews, right? Like this is what we do to anybody that might cause any kind of threat to us or anything like that. This is how much power we have over you as a people. Mm. So there's that communal aspect here too of um, a very clear statement. In fact, the Jewish leaders get bothered by the fact that they put the sign above Jesus' head on the cross, Hail King of the Jews, because that, well, he's not our king, but the Roman soldiers are trying to make a statement about the whole people and not just Jesus, although obviously Jesus is the one who's truly suffering physically. Another piece of that is so much time in the history of the first century, we hear people talk about the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, how Rome had brought peace to the known world of the day. Yes, but, I mean, it was not a peace that was constructed at a table of diplomacy and negotiation. It was brought by brute force, and Mm -hmm. the Romans were committed to doing everything they could to absolutely and utterly crush anyone that they saw to be opposition or a threat to them. And here they are crushing Jesus, like you said, Daniel, not only because of Jesus, but to send a message to the people, you have been conquered. Know your place. And what I find kind of, I don't know, surprising within myself as I look at this, you know, we've been following the thread of crowns through scripture, and we've looked at priestly and royal and celebration crowns, and the crown of thorns, you almost think doesn't belong. I'm surprised that when I think of Jesus, I think like the worst thing he went through is death. You know, that's what I I typically think in my head. Well, you know, he died for us so that we don't have to die eternally. And I think, wow. But as you guys are pointing out, I'm struck by the dishonor, the stripping away mm-hmm. of identity that he endured. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. He's the king of everything. And yet the very act of preparing him for crucifixion is as sacrificial and horrific as the death that he endured. And you know, if anybody's had your identity stripped in any tiny way, <laughs> just an embarrassment or a rejection or a ridicule, I mean, we, we can't even touch this. But the crown of thorns represents that. The purple robe represents that. The beating, mm. the process, the mocking, the spitting, the ridicule, they represent the stripping away of his very royal, priestly identity. We don't know what kind of shrub or thorn or whatever formed this crown. It's like a parody of the victor's wreath of the garland we talked about in our last conversation. We don't know, but it's a mocking symbol. And I love to look forward in the New Testament at the returning of honor and glory to Jesus in a couple of references. And I asked you guys to grab these. And if you'd bring them up now, let's listen for God's 
restoration of identity, of glory for his son. Uh, Hebrews 2, 9. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. At Revelation 4.10. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Again, glory and honor returned to him. Revelation fourteen fourteen. Then I looked and there was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Mm. It's heartbreaking as it is to hear our savior rejected and maligned. We can know that he actually now sits in honor with a crown of righteousness. crown of thorns has become, in a sense, a crown of glory and honor. The story didn't end there with that symbol of humiliation and torture, that crown. Sobering in some ways, thinking about what Jesus endured, but a conversation that ends with that crown of thorns, like the cross, being transformed into a symbol of victory and the depth of God's love for us. Well, one more crown to look at, and I want to ask you something. Do you like getting awards, like being recognized for what you've done? You know, like trophies, uh, medals, certificates, uh, whatever, when you've done something well? I think most of us do. And so have you ever gotten a crown? Well, Elisa and Bill and Daniel and Rasul will conclude our series called Crowns by talking about a number of different crowns mentioned in the Bible that seem to be rewards. But first, let's take a moment to look ahead and preview what the group will be studying together in our next podcast. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, Bill Crowder and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day and Rasul Berry are back at the table for a study called Four Men, Four Stories. In the portion we're going to look at together during these sessions, there are going to be four people and it's in the little book of Third John. And if you don't know where it is, go all the way back to Revelation and then start moving backwards <laughs> past Jude and to the letters of John, First, Second, and Third John. And we're going to be looking at Third John. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because you could miss it. It's just one page yeah. in your whole Bible. Yeah. yeah. And this is one of my favorites when I used to do Bible reading plans because <laughs> it was like, man, I could get a whole book checked off. Yeah. yeah. Fifteen <laughs> verses, and you've covered one of the books of the Bible. And so who are the four men? What are their stories? Uh, What is this letter about? And why is its message important to us today? Well, that and more is what we'll discover together next time as we explore four men, four stories in 3 John on the Discover the Word podcast. And now let's close this study by discussing the question, what kind of crown can we expect in heaven? In the Chronicles of Narnia, do you remember the kids? The Pevensey children. Yeah, yeah. Lucy, Mm -hmm. Susan, Edmund, Peter. And they break through this magical wardrobe into the land of Narnia. And it's the kingdom of Aslan. And Aslan is a lion, and he represents who? Jesus. Jesus, yeah. And in the story, Lucy and Susan and Edmund and Peter become royalty. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. They had crowns. Why did C.S. Lewis depict them in this beautiful story as being royal in the land of Narnia? What's that about? I mean, I think it's tied to our adoption by God into his family. And with our brother being Jesus. Mm. And so we become a part of the royal family of God um, through the work that Christ did 
uh, in the world by dying and rising again and sending the spirit and all of that. So kind of the, the way the story ends up arriving at climax is all of us are invited as a part of that family. Yeah. Yeah. Scripture's filled chock full of references in the New Testament, especially of followers of Christ, believers in Jesus, those in the family of God receiving a, a crown of life. You know, as, as we followed this thread of crowns and we've looked at priestly crowns, kingly crowns, celebration crowns, and the crown of thorns that was mockingly put on Jesus, that we see he's actually been rescued from himself. God rescued himself on our behalf with a crown of righteousness. We also see this, this reference to that we will receive crowns. And there's been lots of debate on this topic. Is it like wealth and riches today? Is it eternal life? Is it right standing with God? Is it belonging in his family? What is it? Mm -hmm. And we've got tons of scriptures we can look at here. What are some of the debates that we struggle with? Just lay them out there so that as we read scriptures, we might have those in our minds. Well, one of the discussions, at least from my theological tradition, is whether or not everybody gets a crown. Because as you mentioned, those different crowns in the New Testament that are awarded to believers, almost all of them come based on a condition. So like, for instance, the crown of righteousness, Paul says, not only for me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. Uh, there seems to be a condition there that those who are anxiously awaiting Christ's return and intentionally looking for it are the ones who receive that particular crown. The crown of life, James says, is for the one who perseveres under trial. And then having stood the test, they will receive the crown of life. Okay. So the implication seems to be that those who don't persevere and, and stand the test don't get the crown of life. So there seems like there could be some conditions to having yeah. the crown of life. Um, Hebrews 2 is an interesting passage, and it really echoes Psalm 8. You know what? Let's go ahead and read Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. Russell, you want to start us? Yep. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What do we do with that? Is, 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 does a crown reference our standing in creation, being made in the image of God? Yeah, it seems like in general, as we've had this conversation, that crowns are both like symbols of honor and a certain sense of esteem that God has for people and definitely for those who love him and identify with him. And yet sometimes it's not just a symbol, but it's, it's an actual thing. <laughs> so it's kind of uh -huh. this, you know, uh, extended metaphor that sometimes can kind of cause us to wonder how much of this is to be taken like literal, like an actual crown versus how much is it mm -hmm. meaning filled with a sense of this is the way that God sees you and feels about you, mm -hmm. crowned with honor mm -hmm. and glory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of feeling that as well. It, what is the aspect in which it's a metaphor versus literal? I think we often talk about it as we want it to be a literal thing because we want a golden crown, but it almost like when we start talking about the crown itself, we almost start to miss the point of what the passage is talking about, which is the glory and honor that for some reason, the God of the universe bestows on people like what, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And then in even these New Testament passages, the work that God does in us and through us leads to glory and honor. I mean, like yeah. it gets better because of the work that God's 
doing and the honor and love and care that he bestows on us. Like that's the like, wow, part of the story. It's almost like there is this crown of glory and honor in Hebrews 2. There is this positioning and belonging in First Peter 2 of being royal. There is also a crown of righteousness, which you referred to, Bill, and that's right standing. There's a victor's crown that is also winning in terms of over death. But maybe the crown that's um, cumulative here, I want to say to our conversation, is the crown of life. It's the crown of eternity with our great, great God. And in that, it does look like there are some, I don't know if we want to call them qualifications, or maybe it's even the result of the right standing that God provides for us. Okay, so maybe take a peek at um, James 1, 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now you could hear that last part to those who love him and think it's a qualification. Yeah, I don't think that's the qualification or condition if there is one. And uh, again, my theological tradition would say, yes, there is one. It's the one who perseveres under trial is Mm -hmm. the one who receives the crown of life. And the issue is whether that's something we receive later in heaven or something that Mm -hmm. we receive in this life, in this world, a life crowned with significance and meaning because by God's grace, we've been able to endure certain trials and tests. I wonder too in that though, the context that James is writing to is people that are suffering in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And the crown of life could simply be that, look, even if they kill you, they can't do the worst to you because I will give you life. Mm -hmm. So there's almost like a way in which he's, as a letter potentially of encouragement and wisdom to those who are experiencing martyrdom and suffering and persecution and torture. It's like, hey, the worst they can do to you is they can kill you, but I will give you the crown of life. One thing that sticks out to me when we were talking about the crown of thorns and the way that the mockery reflected a sort of shaming and a clear way in which the identity of Jesus was rejected or misunderstood And one thing that always comes to mind when someone is crowned, there's this ceremony and, you know, they are often kind of granted this recognition. And the thing that I think we can all, regardless of how we interpret those passages, what is true that we see from, you know, passages like in 1 Corinthians 3 or otherwise in Revelation, when it talks about the prayers of the saints being stored up in a bowl, is that God sees us, right? And wipes away every tear from our eyes and the recognition that we don't get, the sense of affirmation of our relationship with God that we may miss in this world as a result of the brutality of it or even the bullies that may exist, that God gives us that, you know what I mean, when we see him face to face. And that's just something of a contrast that I think is really beautiful about this imagery of of crowns in heaven. Mm. Yeah, Elisa, I think what's jumping out to me in this series is thinking about how does the story of crowns in the Bible tell us the story of the Bible? And taking Psalm 8 as kind of a starting spot, at the beginning of time, God the King created humans and shared his royal dominion over the world with them. And then humans (laughs) made a mistake and tried to rule on their own. And as a result, we needed things like earthly kings (laughs) that were supposed to be symbols of God's will and justice and love, but oftentimes abused that instead. And those priests that were supposed to be hand in hand with the king, leading us closer toward God, they often abused their power and missed out on it as well. And all of that kind of comes together with Jesus on the cross, where we see the ugliest version and the most evil version of a crown ever becoming the thing that sets apart Jesus as the one who laid down his life to show that ultimate royal priestly role on the cross as the one who 
becomes that ultimate picture of what a king and a priest was supposed to be to lead us to God. And as a result of that, at the end of the story, all of us are invited to receive the crown of life and have that relationship with him again that restores the whole story back to where it began with us living with God as his children and a part of that royal family. I think where I want to draw us to a conclusion here is to challenge us to consider God deserved every honor and every glory. He yielded it and shared authority of his image with humankind. That's how he made us. He used priests and he used kings to draw us close to himself and to give us representations, hopeful representations of what he wanted us to have. He invited us into the celebration of his pleasure, whether it's through wisdom or through achievements on this planet. But all of it was tainted, tarnished, if you will. And the crown of thorns represented his ultimately being dishonored in order that he might complete his purposes for us and give us the crown of life, which would mean dwelling in relationship with him. When I pull back from that, it's like drawing the curtain on this plan, this beautiful jewel-encrusted symbol of authority and pleasure and honor that we get to partake in. And, and I'm, I'm left with my mouth kind of hanging open. Um, do I get to have any of that now? Or does God's righteous work over me qualify me for it in eternity? I just don't know. You know. What I do know is that he sees me as his daughter, you as his sons. And he invites me into a relationship where I enjoy the pleasure of that standing with him. Daughter of a king son of a king, children of the royal God. And that is a great way to wrap up this week's fascinating conversations about the many crowns described in Scripture and how they are part of the message and part of how the story of the Bible is told. Uh, your study partners for this series, simply called Crowns, have been regular Discover the Word team members Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the Scriptures, uh, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Well, we sure are glad to have friends like you joining us for these conversations in which we explore the scriptures together. And we're grateful for our supportive friends who make this ministry possible through their financial giving. Because access to Discover the Word is free to our listeners, but producing and distributing these studies, of course, does come with expense. And so your gift today, no matter the size, will help us continue to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And so if you'd like to partner with us financially, go online to discovertheword.org, that's discovertheword.org, and click the Donate tab. You can give right there. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.